The gunpowder plot of 1605 bears all the signs of an entrapment organised by King James I's chief minister, Robert Cecil. It was similar in all too many of its grisly details to a whole series of similar entrapments organised since 1571 by Cecil's father, Elizabeth I's chief minister. They had been designed, one, to discredit the Catholics, two, to bully Parliament, and three, to influence events at court. But all those earlier plots had at least been hung around a genuine core of treason. A real plot had always been discovered, encouraged, elaborated and eventually betrayed by the Cecil's informants and intelligences. So the question is, was there some seed of a genuine treason hidden away within the gunpowder plot? Well, yes, we think there was. Hello, good to see you at the History Café. This is where we come to talk usually about historical stories everyone knows. Just want to try out some new ideas. I'm John Rosebank. And I'm Penelope Middlebow. At the History Café, we revisit stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens. We discovered last time at the History Café that in February 1605, not February 1604, as most of the books mistakenly believe, King James's line on Catholics stiffened significantly. Life was going to get much harder for them. But did they then start to plan some kind of rising or plot? Robert Cecil claimed that his intelligences came across a Catholic plot of some sort during the summer of 1605. As we've seen, Cecil had a truly extraordinary network of intelligences, paid informants. We know that they were keeping a special watch on the houses of known Catholics, and particularly, we might guess, those who'd got into trouble in the past. Now, that would include those who'd been caught up in the Earl of Essex's rising in 1601. In other words, several of the men Cecil eventually accused of the gunpowder plot. If these men were plotting any kind of rebellion, or stir as it was then called, it would be surprising if Cecil had not discovered it. Cecil later told fellow councillors that he'd warned the king in late July or early August 1605 that he had discovered a conspiracy. After the plot was exposed, he wrote to Sir Charles Cornwallis, his ambassador in Spain, saying the Catholics were up to something. Well, he actually wrote, I had sufficient advertisement that most of those that are now fled, being all notorious recusants, by which he means Catholics, with many other of that kind, had a practice in hand for some stir this Parliament. Stir, of course, was a contemporary word for rising or rebellion. Now, we don't know what this conspiracy Cecil discovered was, but the precautions he took strongly suggest that he expected some kind of regional uprising, not a madcap scheme to blow Parliament up. The county-trained militia who were an unpaid, largely conscripted sort of territorial force, well, they'd largely been stood down after the signing of peace with Spain in 1604. But at the end of June 1605, the Lord Lieutenant of Warwickshire, which was a Midlands county in England, a particularly Catholic area, well, he received direct orders from the Privy Council to check that his county militia arsenal was in good order. He was told, unlike the other Lord Lieutenants, to hold his summer militia training as usual. The councillors even recommended a top London armourer to furnish them with the latest up-to-date weapons. 
by September certificates had been duly filed with the names of all the trained men and the weapons they carried in Warwickshire. Sometime in the autumn of 1605, Cecil instructed all the county sheriffs who were due to have been replaced in November that they would now have to hang on until January. Clearly Cecil was expecting something big to go off, but not in London, in the provinces. His men were meanwhile closing in on the Catholic Jesuit priests who'd long been a particular target of the Cecils, father and son. Historian Alice Hogg has tracked one of the priests, Father Henry Garnet, as he moved from house to house in the summer of 1605. She discovered that Father Garnet was finding it tougher and tougher to get around undetected. By midsummer, places that were usually safe houses were being watched. All this suggests that Cecil believed, from the intelligence gathered by his extensive network of informants, that some kind of regional Catholic rising, apparently centred in Warwickshire, near Shakespeare's birthplace, was in the air in the summer and autumn of 1605. What it was. Robert Cecil seems to have believed that a Catholic rising was being planned in the summer of 1605. Its centre, according to the preparations he made, would be in Warwickshire. Among the men who would be on trial for the gunpowder plot in January 1606 was Sir Everard Digby. He was 24, wealthy, a well-known swordsman and musician, with, it was said, plenty of dogs, hounds, falcons and horses. He had a fine house that still stands at Gayhurst in Buckinghamshire, about 20 miles from the Warwickshire border. He'd been converted to Catholicism, but had kept his new faith hidden. And also that of his recently converted wife, Mary. The couple had married when they were 14. So Everard had been knighted by James when he became king in 1603, and become one of his bodyguards, like another of the plotters, Thomas Percy. And Digby was the only one of the alleged plotters who finally admitted in court that he was guilty of treason. But Digby didn't confess to collecting gunpowder or attempting to assassinate the king. What Digby admitted to was raising 50 horsemen for a rebellion under the banner of freedom from all manner of slavery and a pledge to end wardships and all monopolies, which were two of the more shady means by which the king was raising money. All of this evidence suggests that there was a Catholic plot in 1605, but it wasn't a plot to blow the king up in Parliament. It was for a regional rebellion, or rising, based around the Catholic gentry of Warwickshire and the surrounding counties, perhaps with a slate of demands which combined religious grievances with complaints about tax. At an earlier discussion at the History Café, we looked back at all the many plots and risings that had been taking place in England between 1450 and 1603. Judging by all the previous precedents, what we should have expected angry Catholic gentlemen to do in response to the new tough government line against them in 1605 would be, well, to organise a regional rising and attempt to negotiate with the king. And that's exactly what seems to have been going on in the course of 1605. In fact, many of those earlier risings had come up with exactly the same kind of mixed slate it looks as though the Catholics were discussing in 1605, listing both religious and secular grievances. When we look more closely... A regional rising is not only just what we'd expect from discontented Catholic gentlemen in this period, 
it would have followed very smoothly from preparations that we've seen they've been making since 1601. At that time, one of the plotters, Thomas Winter, and others have been collecting horses in the hope of a Spanish invasion. They may conceivably have continued to make these preparations in 1604 under the cover of joining the English regiment fighting in the Spanish army in the Netherlands. All this would have segued very neatly into a regional rising in 1605. Now this interpretation is supported by a private letter smuggled out of the tower by Everard Digby. In it he says that the Catholic Jesuit Father Garnet had told him in the summer of 1605 that the new Pope, Paul V, had declared that priests should not try to stop a Catholic stir or rising and that one of the plotter's plans, Mr Catesby's proceedings, were, quote, approved though every particular was not known. Now, a Catholic rising along conventional lines, aimed at negotiating terms or unseating the king's evil counsellors, might very well have won approval from Pope Paul V. An indiscriminate bomb, aimed to kill the anointed king, a man the previous Pope Clement VIII had openly endorsed, his queen, his children and countless others, would certainly never have got the Pope's approval. So it looks very likely that in the summer of 1605, Cecil's intelligences came across evidence of a regional Catholic rising planned in response to the King's recently toughened line against them and drawing on preparations made in various ways since 1601. And we'll see later at the History Café there's excellent evidence that such a rising was indeed being planned. But a Catholic rebellion was just what Cecil needed. It could readily be turned into something more, well, impressive. Once he'd made the discovery, Cecil swung into action, just as his father had done so many times before. In mid-1605, Cecil discovered plans for a Catholic rising in and around the gentry estates of Warwickshire. It suited him perfectly. He would turn it into something much more spectacular. On the 28th of July, 1605, Parliament, prorogued since February 1605, was put off yet again. Instead of meeting in October that year, it would meet on the 5th of November. As before, the official story was that there were still traces of plague, some dregs of the late contagion, lurking in Westminster. So they would have to wait till November. But this new prorogation was announced at exactly the moment at which Cecil later said he'd come across the Catholic plot. Among his papers is a letter from the Lord Chancellor Ellesmere, two days after the announcement proroguing Parliament. It refers to, quote, certain reasons for Parliament being postponed, which Cecil had carefully not committed to writing, but had let him know through an intermediary. Ellesmere's letter says that the financial situation is serious and they badly need a parliament to meet and vote new taxes, so clearly they don't want it delayed. But they can, however, hang on a bit longer in view of the, quotes many weighty reasons Cecil's man had privately explained. On the 1st of August, Ellesmere writes again and again makes a point of labouring the great and important reasons that Cecil has put up for the delay. It's frustrating, but we don't know what Cecil's private, weighty, great and important reasons were. But they don't sound like the last few cases of plague. More like some secretive plan he was cooking up. It may simply be that Cecil was still struggling to find some way to manage Parliament properly. 
but it may also be that his intelligences still had work to do to turn the plans for the regional Catholic rising they discovered into something that would meet Cecil's need better, some enormous plot that would threaten King and Parliament and get them to do what he wanted. Cecil was apparently continuing to prepare the ground. The 15th of August, he had his long-time friend and plot collaborator, the ruthless intelligencer and torturer William Wade, appointed as Lieutenant of the Tower of London. His job was going to be to get the place ready for the prisoners Cecil expected to arrive there at the start of November. Meanwhile, Cecil's network of informers was on alert. They were keeping the rebellious Catholic gentry under discreet surveillance. Filed among the state papers for early October 1605 is an anonymous list of men who met for supper at one William Patrick's house, probably an alehouse in the Strand. The list includes three of those eventually accused of the gunpowder plot. It also includes the playwright Ben Jonson. Remember Shakespeare's rival. Johnson had formerly been a Catholic himself, but as we've discovered at the History Café, he was also being employed by Cecil as an intelligencer and informant. He may well have been the source of the list. A fortnight later, a similar group met again at the same house. This time the company included one Edward Bushell. He turns out to have been one of the King's household servants, and could well also have been the intelligencer who supplied the information. At the end of October, Cecil closed in. But he was not just going to expose some modest Catholic rising up in Warwickshire. No, in the well-proven tradition he had inherited from his father, he was going to magnify and enlarge and elaborate it. You might say he was going to blow it up out of all recognition. In mid-1605, it seems that Cecil had discovered a plot for a Catholic rising centred in Warwickshire. His intelligences had been keeping the plotters under surveillance. But, we suggest, Cecil wasn't satisfied with a run-of-the-mill regional rising. Just as his father had done many times in the past, he had begun to turn an everyday treason into something much more impressive. And something much more useful to him. We can pick up the tale on the 26th of October, 1605. It was a Saturday. According to the official government narrative of the gunpowder plot, Lord Monteagle, a minor Catholic gentleman, was dining alone at his house in Hoxton, not far from London. It's one of the best-known scenes in the whole plot, one you'll find in pretty much all the books. But from what we've been discovering, it's one of the most badly misunderstood. The official account goes that around seven o'clock in the evening, during Lord Monteagle's supper on this particular Saturday, one of his servants came in and told him that he'd been buttonholed in the street by a tall stranger. This mysterious man had given him a letter for his lordship. According to the government's story, Monteagle then took the precaution of getting another servant to read it out aloud. Of course, there had to be witnesses to dispel any doubt that the letter existed. It still exists, and you can see it in the National Archives at Kew. I would advise you, the letter ran, to devise some excuse to shift of your attendance at this parliament. Retire yourself where you may expect the event in safety. For though there be no appearance of any stir, yet I say they shall receive a terrible blow this parliament. Well, it was late and dark and the letter was anything but clear. But, according to the official account, Monteagle set off at once for Robert Cecil's house in the Strand. The gunpowder plot had apparently been betrayed. 
Now, it's a pity to interrupt such a great and well-known story, but we really do have to check out our information here. You see, Monteagle had history with Cecil. Back in 1601, he'd been one of the Catholic gentlemen who'd been caught up in the abortive rising of Cecil's great rival, the Earl of Essex. Essex and five others had been executed. Monteagle, a soldier whose real name was William Parker, and who in fact had no legal title to go around calling himself Lord Monteagle, had been one of nearly a hundred men imprisoned in the Tower of London. Many of them were interrogated by Cecil's notorious intelligencer, William Wade. They faced ruinous fines. But as we've seen in an earlier history cafe, much to Cecil's chagrin and political aggravation, Queen Elizabeth protected the friends of Essex, like Monteagle. And so, indeed even more so, did the future King James. By 22nd of July 1601, Monteagle even felt brave enough to write a grovelling apology. He pleaded to be released from the Tower, and he went on, My greatest care shall be to do you some acceptable service, which may give you a true assurance that I hold myself tied in all rules of honesty to honour you most. Monteagle's letter from the Tower was addressed not to the King, but to Robert Cecil. And with his promise to perform Cecil some acceptable service in the future, Monteagle was, hey presto, released from the Tower. Over the next few years, Monteagle very carefully kept himself out of trouble. Soon after he became king, James even confirmed his right to call himself Lord Monteagle. But the same couldn't be said for Monteagle's friends. His secretary was Thomas Winter, and he went, as we saw in the first History Café in this series, to the Spanish court looking for money to raise a Catholic rising and the promise of a Spanish invasion in support. Other men Monteagle knew from Essex's rising, like Robert Catesby and the two Wright brothers, were thrown briefly into jail when Elizabeth died just as a precaution. All these men would eventually be fingered in the gunpowder plot, as would Monteagle's brother-in-law Francis Tresham and his employee Thomas Percy. However clean Monteagle kept his nose, he was apparently keeping dangerous company. And Cecil was watching. Whatever was going on with Monteagle and his circle, there's no doubt that Cecil had them very firmly in his intelligence's sights. Monteagle was exactly the sort of man who could be hauled into the tower on the slightest pretext and snuffed out at a word. The confessions later exhorted from the plotters in the tower are full of references to Monteagle, which, as the historian Tim Travers puts it, were later, quote, hastily scratched out and pasted over. At the trial, Cecil ordered the prosecutor, Cook, not to mention Monteagle and to stick to the official story as it had been published in the King's book. Most of the time, Cook remembered. Right the way to the end of the trial of the gunpowder plotters, and beyond, therefore, Monteagle's life hung by a thread. He could not afford to put a foot wrong. And that means that Monteagle was exactly the kind of man who could be leaned on to do a job for Cecil, some acceptable service, as he himself had promised in 1601. So the cosy story of Monteagle's Saturday Night Inn and his mysterious messenger had Cecil's fingerprints all over it. So does the mysterious message itself, the unsigned and undated scrap of writing that was so like the documents that had back in Cecil's father's time, as we've seen, got James's mother, Mary Queen of Scots, executed. So, back to the story of that Saturday Night Inn, but now told in an entirely different voice. What we're witnessing is a pantomime, played out as Cecil's intelligence machine closes its grasp on the Catholics. Cecil 
On Saturday the 26th of October 1605, Monteagle, a Catholic who owes Robert Cecil a favour and was almost certainly working for him, apparently receives a mysterious garbled message. It said something about a blow to Parliament. According to the published government account, Monteagle now sets off in the dark for the Strand and Cecil's house, about three miles, mostly across open country. He finds Cecil is not at home. According to the official government narrative, Cecil is at St James's Palace, uh, working hard, naturally. Cecil reads the mysterious message and proposes they take it to the Earl of Suffolk. He may have been close at hand, since Cecil was having a well-publicised affair with his wife. Historian Pauline Croft suggests it might even have been a menage a trois. Suffolk, in turn, proposes that they consult the Earls of Worcester and Northampton. So, according to the published government account, the four leading councillors in the land quickly assemble. But the account goes on. Neither they nor Monteagle could make head or tail of the strange letter. And so, according to the narrative, they decide to do nothing. In the first place, the narrative explains that's because they realise that only the king would be able to solve such a deep mystery. He is, naturally, much wiser than they are. But the king is, as usual, away on the golf course. I mean, he's hunting. So they'll wait until he's back. And secondly, and rather contradictorily, the assembled wise men decide to do nothing because they would allow the plot to thicken. In fact, what the official government account says is that they decide to allow the practice to ripen. It's an extraordinary choice of words. Practising is what, between themselves, Cecil and his intelligence has called it when they entrapped innocent people in a fake plot. It was not, apparently, a word with which readers of the government account were familiar. Anyway, it was not yet time for Cecil and his intelligences to pounce. They would need to allow the practice to ripen. In case there's any lingering doubt about Monteagle, his letters and the events of that evening, we should note that Cecil later lied repeatedly about them. The published government account dates the appearance of the letter as 26th of October. Writing to the English ambassador to Spain, Cecil said that it was 28th of October. To the other ambassadors abroad, he dated it as the 30th. When writing to the King of France, he said it was the 1st or possibly the 2nd of November. Well, maybe it's easy to muddle the date of something quite so um, uh, important. Uh, but according to the draft account of events first drawn up by Cecil's secretary, Monk, and corrected by Cecil, when Monteagle arrived, Cecil was already with the other earls, Nottingham, Suffolk, Worcester and Northampton, the four other most powerful men in the land. They were about to go into supper. Cecil told the ambassador in Spain that he and the other earls then immediately worked out what the message meant. A terrible blow clearly signified blowing Parliament up. Well, it's obvious, isn't it? Well, is it? According to this version, Suffolk had even pointed out to Cecil that there was a vault under the House of Lords where wood and coal was normally stored and which could be used for the explosion. What extraordinary inspiration! Clearly, Cecil later thought better about this rather unlikely version and changed it to keep the suspense going. And, of course, to give the king all the credit for solving the mystery. Nor is it true that Cecil then did nothing. Quite the opposite. Among the Cecil and government papers, we find notes from George Southwick, an intelligencer who specialised in snooping on Catholics. On the 27th of October, he writes that he's on the tail of certain Catholic priests involved in a plot... Later, he reports that he's been riding flat out since Monday the 28th of October, 1605, in pursuit of the plotters. And on the 5th of November, he writes that he's ready to arrest them. 
Mark Nichols, an historian who assumes from the outset that the plot was genuine and that it took the government completely by surprise, tells us Southwick was one of Cecil's moles amongst the Catholic priests. Then he dismisses him as an unreliable fantasist. But the timing of Southwick's mission is hard to ignore. Even more telling is the survival of these particular letters among the Cecil and state papers. Hmm. William Wade, newly appointed, you recall, lieutenant of the Tower, was now already doubling security. My care hath been of late, he wrote on the 5th of November, that more because we have been extraordinarily warned by such accidents as I have told your lordship, and the night watches are the severest of any fort in Christendom. Meanwhile, according to Alice Hogg's excellent and detailed account of the Jesuits, on the 3rd of November, another informant called Bird was reporting a possible hideout where he thinks he can nab the Jesuit fathers Garnet and Gerard, whom he denounces as the most likely, quotes, hatchers and plotters of this damnable stratagem. Now that's an interesting turn of phrase. Exactly which damnable stratagem, you may well ask? We might assume it's the one that Cecil had told him about, even though it was still two days before the arrest of Guy Fawkes and the King was yet to solve the riddle of the Montiel letter. On the 5th and 6th of November, even before the torturers had got going on Fawkes and produced any names, the Lord Chief Justice Sir John Popham came out with a long list of plotters. It included most of the men who were eventually either shot or executed. Cecil had clearly been drawing up a list of them all along. As we've seen, his informant Ben Johnson had had supper with several of them just a few weeks before. So it's plain that Cecil's intelligences had been onto the scent of a Catholic plot for weeks and knew exactly who they were looking for. The whole notion, therefore, that the government was first alerted by an anonymous letter handed by a tall, dark stranger to Lord Monteagle, who turned out to be related to, knew, of or employed many of those who were eventually accused, is completely laughable. Nor was this all that Cecil was up to. In the weeks leading up to November the 5th, 1605, Cecil was already watching the men he intended to arrest. But he was also making other preparations. Alice Hogg reveals that on the 31st of October 1605, the new Spanish ambassador, Don Pedro de Funiga, wrote home to say that he'd received a mysterious offer. Cecil, he said, was proposing to get rid of every single law against the English Catholics. All the Pope had to do was guarantee that the English Catholics would be loyal to King James. Well, it was a very generous offer. Uh, it was also an extremely unlikely offer, and one that Cecil was in absolutely no position to make. Only Parliament could change the law, and it had proved itself in 1604 boisterously and uncontrollably anti-Catholic. The King would also have to agree to this sensational about-face in his Catholic policy. But he'd only just got back from hunting that day, and wouldn't meet Cecil until the next. However, it's now obvious that Cecil already knew he'd never have to deliver on his astonishing, out-of-the-blue and generous proposition to the Spanish. He knew perfectly well that he was on the point of revealing a monstrous Catholic plot against the King, the royal children and hundreds of innocent citizens. The new Parliament would almost certainly vote yet harsher laws against Catholics, so it was easy to offer generous terms. He'd never have to honour them. Now Cecil, as we've seen, was being paid a large amount of money by the Spanish to, ironically, watch over Catholic interests. We know he was in fact about to clamp down hard on them, but of course the gunpowder plot would give him the perfect alibi. So he could carefully make a generous and timely offer of toleration. 
Nobody could say he was to blame if it transpired right at the moment when they might have been free from all legal penalties that the English Catholics devised some hellish plot against the king. The offer might also help keep his Spanish paymasters sweet, still sensitive as they were after being pushed into signing a rather unfavourable peace treaty. They might now, perhaps, pay Cecil even more to undo the mess their English friends had made. Anyway, back to the official government account of the plot. In its ridiculous parade of half-truths and lies, it reveals more and more about Cecil's intentions in turning a Catholic rising in the Midlands into the gunpowder plot. The account paints a charming picture of Cecil on the 1st of November, taking Monteagle's letter to the King. We're told that Cecil went alone and mentioned nothing about his discussions with the other Privy Councillors, nor the frantic intelligence work he'd been setting in motion. Instead, he stood humbly by, saying that the letter must have been written by a fool, and he could make no sense of it. King James regarded himself as a brilliant thinker, with a passion, explains the official account, for solving obscure riddles and doubtful mysteries. He also had a fear of loud noises and explosions, perhaps because his father had narrowly escaped death from a gunpowder blast in Edinburgh when James was a baby, only to be strangled in the garden straight away afterwards. Two years later, his mother, Mary Queen of Scots, fled, leaving him effectively an orphan. The government story now breathlessly recounts how James pours over the strange letter and then, suddenly, in a flash, is, quotes, divinely illuminated. An explosion! They were going to blow Parliament up with gunpowder! Cecil had done his calculations brilliantly. Gunpowder was the one thing that King James, timid, wearing his pistol-proof doublets, possibly feared the most in the world. The thing, above all, that would be absolutely certain to make him both mortally afraid and determined to take action. Gunpowder. We may note how Cecil has not only put James in fear of his life, but has carefully handed him all the credit for solving the case. On the 9th of November, the King himself swaggered into Parliament and told the assembled great and good how he personally had delivered all of the nobility and bishops, most of the knights and gentry, all of the judges and most of the lawyers and clerks in the land, as well as his wife and sons, from a, quote, roaring, near thundering sin of fire and brimstone. Cecil's plan was working out very well indeed. The king was lapping it up. So back to the government's highly entertaining account of events. James has his extraordinary moment of divine inspiration on the 1st of November. The threat to everyone's life is now clear. So, as you'd expect, his previous council agrees to do, well, to do, um, to do nothing whatsoever for three more days. Cecil, protesting rather too much, is pictured declaring to his fellow councillors that there's really no need to do anything, uh, nothing at all to worry about. He ends his little speech, says the official account, with some merry jest upon this subject, as his custom is. Well, you just have to laugh, don't you? So we reach 4th of November, 1605. It's the day before Parliament is finally due to meet after more than a year of prorogation. Lord Chamberlain, Suffolk, who's responsible for making all the arrangements, decides to go on a tour of inspection. The great moment has come. We can imagine Cecil crossing his fingers in the hope that all his months of planning are now finally going to come together. He will reveal to the world not some dull regional rising, but a dastardly Catholic plot at the heart of Westminster. But just how Cecil's plan works out, we'll have to wait until the next History Café. For more on this story and others at our History Café, go to historycafe.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. 
It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have. Or contact us on social media at History Cafe Pod. Thank you.